0: Um, my name is Seth Manookin. I'm the director of the uh, Communications Forum. Um, before we start, there are a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first, we'd like to thank both the DeFlorès Fund for Humor um, and the MIT Political Science Department for helping to put on uh, tonight's event. Um, there is, in addition to this this forum tonight, there is going to be a screening of. Uh, the entire documentary, Tickling Giants, tomorrow at 7 p.m. in 26.100. And that is also free and open to the public. Um, I think, is that information also on our site? Yes. So uh, if you did not write that down, you can also go to the communications forum site. Um, We have a mailing list and a pen right up here. Uh, So if you're interested in this type of thing, please sign up. Um, We will only send you six emails a year uh, to announce each of the six events that we will have. Um, We don't give out your email to anyone else, uh, but if you would like to stay informed about things we are doing, uh, please do sign up. Um, After I introduce the speakers, uh, we are actually going to show a trailer for the film itself, Um, and then we will start the event. Uh, And our next communications forum after tonight is on Thursday, November 8th, um, and that is with Eric Lander, uh, the director of the Broad Institute, and Maria Zuber, um, MIT's head of research, and they will be discussing um, whether America is losing its miracle machine, whether we need to uh, have ro- more robust funding for uh, basic research, um, and what we are in danger of losing when we don't do that. Uh, so, with that out of the way, I'd like to introduce our uh, our guests for tonight. Um, to my left, your right, uh, Amber Day is a professor of media and performance studies at Bryant University. Um, She's the author of Satire and Dissent, Interventions in Contemporary Political Debate, and the editor of DIY Utopia, Cultural Imagination and the Remaking of the Possible. Her work focuses on the intersections of art and political speech, including satire and irony, political performance and activism and public debate. She also has a background in performance and improv comedy, Um, uh, which we will not make you do improv later tonight. (laughs) Right. Still, you know. Um, uh, Sarah Taxler uh, um, has worked for four late-night shows, including 12 years at The Daily Show, where she was senior producer. Um, Her documentary, Tickling Giants, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, and the New York York Times called it a first-rate documentary. Uh, Variety called it an ebullient ode to freedom, A graduate of Washington University in St. Louis, she can talk backwards. Wow. And you were not on Twin Peaks.
1: Uh, Not yet. Huh.
0: (laughs) That seems like that's something that would be very useful for that. Huh. (laughs) How how did you learn how to talk backwards?
1: Um, I'd like to say I was a young child when I realized I could do it, but I was in college and uh, (laughs) with a bunch of friends and tried to read something and realized it was easy for me and it totally freaked me out. That's incredible. And then I uh, started that's having dreams cool. I was talking
0: back, back. I'm kind of obsessed with Twin Peaks. So that's. Uh, it can be
1: the rest of this conversation. But yeah,
0: seriously. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not moderating, or it would be. Um, uh, Taxler can talk backwards, yes, and has a remarkable fake sneeze as well. Um, so uh, we'll now show um, the, uh, the trailer. And then like all forums, we'll start out with a moderated discussion. Uh, with our guests and then we'll open it up to audience Q&A. So thank you all so much. Oh, and during the audience Q&A, if you could come to one of the mics um, and uh, if you don't mind identifying yourself just because we do include a synopsis uh, of the event and all the questions, and then we don't need to just call you a person, um, but can let everyone know who you are. All right, thank you so much.
2: Protesters on the streets in Cairo, Egypt.
0: Violent clashes are raging once Bloody again. Bloody clashes between protesters and security forces. More than 1,200 people have died. I is
3: Youssef is known as Egypt's Jon Stewart. 30 million viewers for his weekly program.
2: 40
1: percent of the entire population is watching. <laughs>
3: It's someone who's saying things that are similar to what we're saying to each other, things that are not usually on TV.
2: But I think it's very brave of him. Egypt's public prosecutor has ordered the arrest of popular television presenter Bassem Youssef. They're
3: saying that he has insulted President Mohamed Morsi and insulted Islam. That a comedian would be a wanted man is itself an astonishing thing. Does satire get you
0: into trouble? I'll tell you this, it doesn't get me into the kind of trouble it gets you into. <laughs>
4: An aktuel. Basim Yusuf. Laysal an. It's time to work from home if you want to because it could be safer. What are
1: we going to do? I have absolutely no manual to do this.
3: And I hear Horeya! Horeia! The revolution is going through a very critical moment. We've been waiting for something to happen. This show
0: is about holding authority accountable, regardless of who's in charge.
4: Screw them. We are the voice of the people. So funny.
1: <laughs>
5: and you all should watch it if you haven't seen it. It's great. It is really a great film. Um, so yeah, let's start from the beginning. I'm, I, I'm assuming that you met Bassem Youssef first when working at The Daily Show. And I'm wondering um, what, made you, what made you want to follow him and, and actually embark on this project that was totally different from what you were doing at the time?
1: Well, um, first, I'd like to acknowledge that it's funny to be two feet from someone yes. and hear their voice so loud yeah, in these yeah, microphones. Yeah. It's a very interesting experience. I, um, I, uh, and also, I just want to say thanks to MIT, and Chris, and Seth, and, and you, Amber, um, for having me. I met Boston at The Daily Show, and uh, he came in to observe. And um, I was just talking to someone about this right before in the audience. Uh, we had never had anyone do that before, come in just for the purpose of observing us. And uh, he came with three producers. And the room that I sat in happened to be kind of a spacious spot. And right across from my desk, there were some couches. So they just hung out in there during the day. And we got to talk a bunch. And um, there were a few things. One is he was a heart surgeon at the time. And I couldn't imagine John Stewart doing <laughs> heart surgery during the day and then hosting The Daily Show at night. Right. Um, not to say he couldn't. It's just hard to picture. Right. Um, also, I had had an idea that I'm still interested in about following a late night show for the year leading up to an election. I was a fan of the movie, The War Room. Mm -hmm. And I liked the fact that they followed a presidential campaign, but the most famous person in that room was like a tiny part of the story. And it was really about the process and the staff. And I thought there was something interesting about how a satire show deals with difficult moments. Um, And I had kind of, plotted out what that might look like. And then when I met Bossum, I thought, this is that story with much, much higher stakes. Um, And then uh, the other thing is there were four of them, including Bossom, who came. Two of them were women. And I was really curious what it would be like to be my counterpart as a woman working as a producer at a comedy show in Egypt. (laughs) And I was um, just curious and impulsively asked Bossom if I could make a movie about him. And he said yes. And I think both of us were then like, what did we just agree to do? <laughs> um, and, and sat on it for a little bit until we figured out how to actually make it happen, right? Um, and then how long were you actually in Egypt filming? Like, what, what's the time period that's covered? So I met Bossom in 2012, um, but when he was at The Daily Show, um, which you'll see in the movie tomorrow, um, he there's footage of it. He was being followed around by his producers who were like taping every single thing he did. So I figured there was a good chance there was other footage. So between their footage and other archival that we got, um, (laughs) the story begins in 2011. And then we filmed from until 2014 in Egypt, and then some here, um, including some right in Cambridge, uh, later in the film. And uh, I was in basically the way late night shows work for the most part you have um, about 10 weeks off a year, like these unpaid dark weeks, so the whole show shuts down. You have two working dark weeks where everyone's in the office, but for the rest, you can kind of do what you want. Um, So I would use those to work in the film. And then a few times I went to Egypt um, where I had to take off work, but just because there were things that I couldn't schedule, like the show was coming back on a new network or things like that that were time sensitive. Mm
5: -hmm, And I, I think there's this funny irony in that, of course, all the marketing materials for the film, um, he's described as Egypt's Jon Stewart, um, which totally makes sense for an American audience to sort of understand who he is. And yet, my understanding is that when he was at the height of his popularity, he, his audience was much larger than Jon Stewart's yeah. is on
1: a given night. Unlike <laughs> anything we've ever had here, probably maybe Johnny Carson in, in his heyday, but... Um, they would get between 30 and 40 million viewers per episode. Jon Stewart was getting 2 million per episode. Right. Um, so there's literally nothing I can compare it to. I guess like the closest thing would be the Super Bowl, but it was every week. Right. Uh, and it, he was doing something people didn't hadn't seen before. Like there's satire in Egypt that was making fun of. Um, the weather and traffic and more benign things but not political humor ever and certainly not mm-hmm. at the expense of the president so some people were tuning in because they loved watching it and some people were tuning in because they hated him but mm-hmm. he still got but you had a to see guys yeah exactly right 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 right. but i'm sure he didn't mind the comparison to, to no john. i mean in fact i think he started it i think <laughs> he loved john stewart and he wanted to meet john stewart um so he was contacting everyone he knew Trying to find a way to get to the Daily Show. And we kind of condense it in the movie. But <coughs> when he comes to New York, it wasn't to be on the Daily Show originally, it was to observe. Right. And then he kind of like charmed everyone, including John, and they asked if he'd like to come on as a guest. So uh, that was like his personal goal because he was a fan. But it's not, certainly wasn't something that most people in Egypt watched. The people who worked on the show knew it. And um, there's one cable channel that would carry. Um, Daily Show and at the time Colbert um, so unless you happen to have that channel you wouldn't know it and for bossum he kind of had to train himself to watch because aside from I guess at the time I don't know who uh, I guess Obama was in office. Aside from Obama he didn't know most of the politicians so right. you kind of have to do research to understand satire to begin with right. so most people in Egypt wouldn't know the players. So. Right,
5: Right, 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 got it. Um, and then, as you as we saw in the in the trailer, even John Stewart makes a visit to his set as well, and it's a big surprise. Were you instrumental in setting that
1: up in that visit? Uh, actually, John. So Bassem really wanted John to visit, and John made a movie um, called uh, Rosewater that was filming in Jordan, and he took the summer off to film. And before he left, Boston came on again, and John told him, "Well, I'm in the Middle East. I'll come see you guys." Um, so, they had already put that into motion themselves, right. uh, and then, coincidentally, the one of the um, producers on this film is Maziar Bahari, who was the um, star of Rose—well, he wasn't the, the actor. The story was based on his life, right, right. <laughs> but it was funny because neither of us uh, had ever met, and. When uh, Boston suggested to us that we would work together, we both kind of said to John, "Like, is this a good idea?" And he's like, "Yeah, that that would be a good match." So, right, very cool.
5: Um, and so, by the time you started filming in Egypt, obviously you had uh, quite a bit of experience at The Daily Show. Um, and what was it like coming from? I mean, The Daily Show is high profile and it has a relatively high budget because it's an American show on Comedy Central. How did it compare to what? Um, what the Egyptian show looked like in backstage.
1: I mean, big picture very similar, detail wise very different. So like when I got there, um, it was like the Bizarro episode of Seinfeld where um, everyone kind of looked and acted like the people I worked with at home, but there were like Ahmeds instead of Adams. And uh, it, it, so in some ways it was like a weird. I felt like I've been here before, even though it was all brand new. Um, and atmosphere-wise, it's self-selective. Like, the people who want to work on a satire show are interested in current events and are passionate about politics and like to make jokes about things. So in that way, it was similar. Um, there were a lot of differences in terms of like the makeup of the staff because it hadn't been done before. So there were a few people who had TV backgrounds, but the vast majority were um, engineers and architects and lawyers and people fresh out of college who just this seemed cool, and they were fans of Bossom's YouTube show. <coughs> so when he got a TV show, they were like, I would like to do this. That That's not really typically a TV show here. Sure. And then um, there were a lot of, it, it was much harder for them just in terms of things available. I mean, these types of shows have been around for a while, so there's lots of services that kind of catered us. I mean, there's the AP has transcription services, um, and Nexus has transcriptions which make our lives easier in finding clips. And we use um, most TV shows now, or many at least, use this program called Snapstream, <laughs> which is like a DVR just for the channels you set up that's searchable and you can play clips. So, like, we would record every news channel, every big speech, all the C SPANs all day long. And then, when we would need to find um, MIT speaker series, you type it in, and anytime anyone has said it, since you've been recording, it shows up. And that was something that was developed during the course of me being at The Daily Show. It was harder at the beginning, but they had nothing like that. It was literally people watching every show, transcribing every word, suggesting clips, and then showing those clips. So they just had a lot more work to do right. in order to make it happen. And were many of them still
5: working at their regular jobs? No,
1: everyone was full-time. Um, there were interns, who, some of whom were still in school, but um, the staff were all full-time, very much full-time, like long days. So. Right, right.
5: Um, and obviously, and as we can tell from the trailer as well, that there's some fear that builds and, and, and Bassem and his staff are, are in fear for their lives, really. Um, how did you feel? <laughs> and did you feel like you were in danger and, and your crew was in danger when you were there?
1: Um, uh, well, so that was something that was a surprise, I mean, for everyone. Um, I certainly, when I asked Bassam if I could make the movie, I thought it was like a delightful romp um, <laughs> through this person coming out of the Arab Spring to do this comedy show. But uh, he becomes a lightning rod, and to this day still is. Like I will walk down the street with him, and there'll be people who love him, and to show their affection, they'll be like, you know, can I buy you a water bottle, or just anything to say hello and thank you. And then there's other people who scream at him that he's a traitor walking in Manhattan. So he still is mostly loved, but very divisive. (laughs) Excuse me. But in Egypt, um, yeah, there were a bunch of things uh, that were challenging. One, I mean, I didn't have a budget while filming, so I went by myself and just hired a local crew. Um, So uh, in terms of shooting, low budget, solo, some of the challenges were we had... uh, It wasn't as commonplace at least a few years ago for people to film things or take pictures the way... We probably couldn't go anywhere today and not see someone taking a selfie or something. That was not the culture. So anything with a camera was um, a problem potentially. So we had a camera person who was beaten up and his footage was taken um, and they kept asking whose side he was on and they meant politically and he was trying to explain. He was just making a movie about a TV show and um, that was not a sufficient answer. Uh, so we tried to not get any publicity and not say anything on social media about filming until we were done with the Egypt portion of the filming. Uh, <coughs> there was one time when uh, Boston goes to a new network and there's major protests outside and there's a scene in the film where they offer that people don't have to come to work the next day because they know there are gonna be these protests and they were afraid the office was gonna get firebombed. And I was kind of like, I hope they don't come in because then I don't have to go. (laughs) Um, But uh, unfortunately, but really fortunately, they were very brave and and went. And uh, I was filming outside with one of our camera people and they asked me to go inside because they were concerned that um, I'm clearly not Egyptian and they thought that um, I might spark some trouble because there were rumors that Bossum was a CIA operative, and they thought that I would add legitimacy to that. Um, so when I went outside, people started screaming, and they asked if I would go inside, um, and I was trying to film like the second camera, and I just had to stop shooting because my hand was shaking. Um, and then at a different time when there was going to be protests, um, one of Bossom's, uh publicists told me she didn't think I should come, Because she was afraid that if there was a problem, she didn't want to feel responsible. So I talked to Bossom, and he was like, I think you should come, because I'm going to be there. And worst case scenario, you get blown up. And if you do, then a Daily Show producer got blown up at my show, and that's great publicity. (laughs) Uh, So he was all for it, and luckily that didn't happen. But on that trip... um, 60 Minutes was shooting that week also, a profile, and I uh, kind of realized how ill-equipped I was in some ways by seeing the team they had versus- Security like, detail. Security detail, and they, they had um, someone whose full-time job was just providing them with plans on escape routes, essentially. Oh, wow. And um, on the day of the taping, there was a lot of protests, and there were like the equivalent of SWAT teams all over the place. and uh, two of the guys were whispering to each other and kind of pointed to me, and they called me over and said, uh, if something happens, in the back, there's an alley and there's a ladder, and if you climb over the ladder, there's a van, and you can jump in and come with us. And I said, well, what's going to happen? And they said, if it happens, you'll know. And I was like, okay, uh, thank you. And uh, it just made me realize that I, I didn't have a good plan B, if you know. but at the same time, for the most part, it's a big city, and even when something bad happens in one place, it's not like everything shuts down. I mean, the same as it is here, um, and things were mostly okay. There were, um, I mean, a few other things like that, but one was the hotel I stayed at a few times was a Marriott. And uh, it w- I found out the second time I stayed there, it was known as the Marriott Cell. Um, and before I knew this, I noticed that uh, I'd only stayed there one other time, and granted, tourism was very low, so there weren't a lot of people staying there, but um, I noticed when I walked in that everyone who worked there recognized me, and I'm a woman traveling alone, and my skin was lighter, and there were reasons maybe I'd stand out, but I was just like blown away by the customer service that they knew who I was, <laughs> and then I heard this story, and so um, Al Jazeera journalists were staying at this hotel and were arrested, and there were concerns that maybe the staff had turned them in or something happened, and then it just makes you paranoid, like whether or not there's truth to it. Like I was afraid to write my journal when I stayed there or talk to my family because you're just not sure. And one night I was um, eating dinner at the hotel restaurant and just doing some work, and this guy was just staring at me. And I paid my bill and left, <coughs> and I was afraid to go into my room. So I went to the lobby of the hotel and he was behind me and I went to a sitting area and he was behind me and there was a business center and he was behind me. And um, my phone rang and it was Boston just checking in, saying hi, and he asked how I was. And I said, actually, I'm freaked out, I'm freaking out. Uh, I'm nervous right now. And I told him what was going on. And he was like, oh, don't worry, he wants you, baby. And I was like, what? And he was like, oh, he's flirting with you. And I said, I don't think so. And I thought it was a case of just, a guy not quite getting it and the next morning I told some women in the office what was going on they were like oh yeah he was flirting with you and i uh, it's just a different social norm than i was used to and uh was kind of an example of just as a woman traveling alone something that can right freak you out even if it, it i probably was not actually in danger in that moment but sure. uncomfortable sure but
5: yeah and and did the films, so you said you kept a low prof- profile as, which is probably better for them, and that it didn't draw attention to, to them and get them in trouble. Um, did this film then screen in Egypt after you'd finished it?
1: It has screened once publicly. Well, so outside North America, it's on Netflix. So uh, a few years ago, Egypt got Netflix. So we weren't sure what was going to happen when it came out, and then um, kind of to the last minute, we didn't know if they were gonna let it play, and and they did, so. It is people in their homes can view it. Um, We had one public screening, which was at a university in Cairo, and they planned the whole screening, and um, we set up a Skype Q&A with Bossum and everyone was excited. And the day before, they told Bossum that, they were told that they weren't allowed to do it, but that he had to announce he was canceling, because they couldn't announce that um, they, were they weren't cancel. letting him do it, that, that the government wouldn't allow it. Um, and so the agreement was that they would do the screening, but not... They, they, the school would be allowed to do the screening, but only if he didn't do the Q&A. So um, we, they did the screening, and there was it was a 700-seat place that filled up, and um, apparently it went really well, but unfortunately he couldn't be a part of it. Oh.
5: um and I imagine, obviously, when you started the film, you had no idea how it was going to end up, or how what how it was going to end. But um, did you? I mean, did you have a sense of what was going to happen with the show, and whether it was going to be controversial, or or did it sort of go in a direction?
1: No, when it started, I thought um, it was more. I mean, the story that interested me was um, this idea, which is explained in the film, but tickling giants. The term is about, um, it comes out of this little cartoon, which is the thing on my shirt, but there, a, uh, a guy who works at the show who's a writer draws this cartoon of um, a little guy who's bossing with a feather tickling a giant. And I like that picture, and the term tickling giants came out, and kind of what it came to mean was um, an individual finding a creative, nonviolent way to uh, draw attention to an abusive power. So I thought this story was about the fact that Bassam was a regular guy who, uh, his country fell into this revolution and things got extremely violent and through his nonviolent violent means he, he got so much more attention than the people who were literally a mile away from his office killing each other. And that was really interesting to me. <laughs> that using humor, he had, such a bigger microphone and, and a, a much stronger impact on people and dialogue. And, um, so the thing I was into initially and, and still is the, my big takeaway for the film, is the idea that anyone can have their... Th- most of us aren't going to start a comedy show and uh, become one of the most famous comedians in the world, probably. Um, but, but everyone has a thing that they could do, and that was what was interesting, was that he was a private citizen and not a celebrity, and he had this huge impact. Um, I definitely didn't think it was his life would would become as difficult as it did so right
5: and on that note do you are there any updates about what he's doing now and yeah he
1: I saw him two or three days ago um, he um lives in Los Angeles and um he likes, his joke is that he's taking meetings, which he says is LA speak for like not really doing anything. But um, he, he would like to be a performer, writer mm-hmm. um, in film and TV. And, and the ideal thing would be to get a special like Netflix or HBO and then get a show out of it. Like he'd like to do a show focusing on international issues and free speech issues. Um, but it's hard. He's remaking his life in another country. Right. And as exceptionally famous as he is, most people here have never heard of him. Right. So um, he kind of has to reinvent himself again. Um, but he's enjoying the stuff he's doing. He tours with the movie sometimes. He's um, doing a show online about, um, he's vegan and very committed to plant-based diets. So he's doing some stuff about that. Um, and right now he's in New York this week and next week at a venue called Joe's Pub. Which is a great theater in New York City, doing a one-man show. Um, and when I went the other night, when we walked out of the show, we saw Lin Manuel Miranda standing in the lobby, so he was very excited. Oh, so, particularly wow. so in the musical is hopefully the next step.
5: <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very cool combo. Yeah. Um, so, uh, obviously, his show was shut down in Egypt. Is he? Does he feel free to travel back to Egypt, or does? No, absolutely not.
1: He has not been back. Um, not to to ruin the movie, but there's legal issues, which is why he left, and he just doesn't know what would happen if he walked in. I mean, it could be immediate arrest. He doesn't know what would happen, so unfortunately he hasn't been back. He's seen family when, you know, out of the country, but he hasn't been able to go to anything.
5: Right. That's hard.
1: It's very hard, yeah.
5: Um, And what do you think of his legacy in Egypt, I mean, uh, since that part of his life is is over, right? And his, he's remaking his life here, but so what do you think his legacy is in that country? Uh,
1: well, so something we thought about a lot in the edit was um, whether he has a legacy of hope or not that he left. Um, and basically the discussion was around the fact that um, we had a bunch of Egyptians on our team and um, a few people felt like you don't want it to seem too hopeful because then people leave the movie and think, "Oh, I, well done. it's done, yeah. I don't have to care, I don't have to do anything. Um, but you also don't want it to feel completely devastating because then why bother trying? Yeah. Um, and I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think, I mean, his show being canceled it was devastating. I think a little bit more so for the people who made the show in the audience than for him. Right. For him, making it was devastating. His life was completely turned upside down and um, you know, unlivable. And so I think for him there was a drop of relief, even though leaving the country certainly was not a relief, but not having to be that much of a lightning rod I think it was probably a nice thing. But so I think for his legacy, in my mind, it's the idea that this can happen right now it's definitely not, and there are comedy. There's a Saturday Night Live spinoff there, and they make jokes about weather and traffic and other family issues, and mm-hmm. you know, e- uh, a little easier to joke about things. But no one is doing political satire. I think it's kind of hard to say whether it will happen again. But my feeling is, once people have experienced free speech, they'll want it again, and I think we see in our own country. A lot of people are willing to trade free speech if they think it makes them safer, um, but ultimately, I think people will fight for it again. And I, um, Bassam always makes the point that you know revolutions are not quick; that I mean, they take decades or more. Mm-hmm. And so, why should the Arab Spring be an exception? Like, it's it's bad right now, mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem hopeful. But these things don't take five years. So I think his legacy is that. People saw that it's really good for society to have a joker who's holding power accountable. And I think he educated people on a lot of things and, and used jokes to help them see those things. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that um, that will inspire other people to do more. There there one guy in the film, the cartoonist that I mentioned on Deal, to me was kind of the spirit of the film, because he's a young guy um, very early in his career who's a writer on the show. And um, he still is doing a lot of this stuff. I mean, he's trying to make a show where he's kind of a Stephen Colbert character. And mm-hmm. it's not easy. And I think, you know, hopefully it wouldn't be a harm to himself. But he, he's a political, car, political cartoonist and is very much still vocal. So there's still people trying to do it. Right.
5: Um, And I really, I love how, I can't remember if it's right at the end, but I know that at some point near the end, you have a sort of call to action, uh, which I think is unusual for a documentary and and particularly a film about a comedian. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk about your thinking behind that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, the call to action is that each person should find their own way to start tickling giants. So, I mean, a little bit of what I was talking about before, but everyone can do a thing, whatever your thing is. And um, for some people it's more creative, for some it's more scientific. Um, I read something today that (coughs) made me think of something related to this group, which was um, I saw something that uh, Tammy Duckworth was talking about legislation she introduced uh, for there to be uh, places for women to breastfeed in airports because you can't like sit in the public toilet and very easily do that and I remembered reading something about MIT a few years ago, had a hackathon to create, I think it was like the breast pump that doesn't suck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And it was an example of people using their own specific talent to stop a group of people, in this case, nursing mothers from from having to not be able to have an equal role in their society. And it's like a really interesting example of people taking their thing and and helping their skill set. There was another thing I saw last year where um, there was a woman who um, makes font types and she realized that um, Hebrew and Arabic, I forget which is which, but on one, if you cover just the top half of the word, you can still read it. And then the other, if you cover just the bottom half of the word, you can still read it. So she made a font that combined Hebrew and Arabic, because she was like, if you can't even like ever read the same information, how could you ever start a dialogue? Right. I thought that was super cool. Right. Like That's a very specific skill set that she used to have at least a starting point. Right. Um, so The call to action for Tickling Giants is for everyone to find their thing. Um, I think it can apply in a lot of ways. There's The hard way is finding the thing that you care about, and then finding a way to combine your talent with that thing. Um, there's easier ways to do it, like signing up to vote and then voting. There's there's easier ways to stop an abuse of power, um, and those are important too. And the call to action, in my mind, would be to think about what your thing would be. And in the meantime, because that can be hard to do, until you know what your thing is, help someone else achieve their thing. So if someone else cares about an issue that you care about and they have a way that they need help, support them while you find your own way to help.
5: Um, and you um, when we talked briefly before, you had mentioned that though this film was made um, prior to the 2016 election, that watching it now some people have said to you, "Oh, you must have updated it because they were seeing new things in the film um, and I'm wondering so what in particular do you think is standing out to people now like on on watching it in a new moment in this country
1: yeah so um it's been a super weird thing where a bunch of times, people who've worked on the film, who've seen it again this year, um, including the editor of the film, like the last person to ever touch the film, <laughs> saw the movie a few months ago and asked me when I changed it. And I, had, I didn't know what he was talking about. And then he was like, <laughs> it just felt different. Like, what was different? And I was like, "Nothing. you are the last person to ever touch it. Um, and I kind of had that experience um, when the movie first came out, and we were at a festival, it was um, the weekend after the presidential election here, and I watched the movie, and I had seen the movie a thousand times, and I just felt different. And I, uh, the audience reactions were different. I think before, people here were watching it as a thing that happened someplace else, and now they're watching it as a thing that might be happening here, and um, a... Basically, a what what could happen if we don't try to make sure that we don't let things and freedom slip away? And there's so many things in the movie that um, wouldn't even have made sense before, so we didn't put them in. Like, um, you know, two and a half years ago, we are in the edit, and people didn't know the term fake news, so we didn't include it, because that was a very hotly debated thing there, and um, do you trust anyone in the media, and do you trust all the, th- you know, the government... Had state-run media, but like Bossum was called fake news. There's there's a woman two weeks ago who, um, in a story we can't relate to at all here, but uh, a woman accused someone of sexual harassment, and um, they they put her in jail, saying it was fake news. So um, we di- we didn't even know that term, and then this is what's going on, kind of in this story, and then. Uh, Another thing that was something that we didn't include at all in the film because it was just too complicated, we're like, we'd have to explain so much for audiences here to get it, was the idea of paid protesters (coughs) and suggesting that um, someone wasn't actually speaking out because they believed in something, they were only speaking out because someone put them up to it. And that was just such a foreign concept to the kind of young audience that we were aiming for here that we were like, ah, that's too much to get into, We, we won't explain it. And then now, of course, those are all really readily available ideas for us and um, the movie is about a guy who makes jokes about a president and that president doesn't like it and stops him and I mean this last year or so um, President Trump tweeted about Alec Baldwin and Michelle Wolf and Samantha Bee and all these things that are just inappropriate for a president. To vocalize um, and and of course all of the many many comments about the press and how they can't be trusted and they're evil and all these things that are dangerous. I mean you know we saw this week uh, journalists are right. it's a it's a dangerous job uh, and to discredit them is only trying to remove that that extra um, lens on the people in power and and Bossom was trying to shed light on that and I think when I was making the movie I was very aware of the fact that I'm not Egyptian, and for me, the movie is about um, free speech and free expression, and it happens to have the backdrop of the Arab Spring, but I always felt like I'm not the perfect person to tell the story of the Arab Spring. I think I'm a, a decent person to tell a story about like using jokes to draw mm-hmm. attention to abuses of power, so that's what the story was for me, and then now, as an American, when I re-watch it, I see it a lot more from the experience of um, what's happening to my country. Mm -hmm. And I actually emailed with Andil, the political cartoonist, shortly after our election, and I said, what do you do when uh, your country isn't what you thought it was, and it's all changing, and how do you handle that? And uh, he wrote back and he said, well, um, first, you have to recognize that your country didn't change you just didn't realize it, what, what it was. And for a lot of people in your country, they already had to deal with these issues and you might have been immune to it, but um, you have to recognize that. And then um, you keep going and you right. you, know, you try to stay motivated and stay active. So. Right. Well,
5: and speaking of the president who weighs in on, uh, you know, he seems to have a very thin skin and weighs in on comedy in a way that is unusual for American politicians and public figures. Um, as somebody who's in that industry, is it just really tempting to try to bait,
1: <laughs> you know, try to get a reaction? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think it's like trying to. I mean, it's pathetic when the president engages in a fight like that. So I don't think it's. I I don't think the draw is to like be a troll and and bait somebody into it at all. I think it's. Um, I mean, I think most people who make satire would be very happy for him to abstain from, from yeah. those criticisms. I think it's more like the challenge is, how do you make jokes about things when everything's so absurd? Right. That, like There's a big challenge in the last few years of sitting in the room and pitching a story and then being like, will anyone know that's a joke? Like, is that obvious or is that um, it's, and the news cycle's so fast now that those are more of the challenges, I would say. Um, right. But nah, I don't know. I, uh, it's too sad when he does it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
5: Well, and I I did want to ask you if we can segue into the sort of late night sure. comedy world. Um, uh, I it is a world that's n- been notoriously male dominated, um, and that's changing to some degree. And we can see it changing, but obviously the demographics don't just flip on the dime. Um, so I'm wondering if you've found particular challenges as a woman working in the industry or how
1: that has been for you? Um, I think, so I mentioned before one of the things that was interesting to me when I met Boston was that two of the people at his show were women. And then when I got there, like if you see the movie, I was shocked at the vast majority of his staff being female. Mm-hmm. Um, there was still a division in terms of the writer's room, which is where the big division is here. I think people always talk about there not being women in comedy, and there's tons of women who work in late night. Um, there's fewer on the creative side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was really, like his entire research team was probably, I don't know, maybe 90% women. Like It, it was very different there, and, and what my initial interest was based on a bias that just didn't exist. I thought it was going to be, harder there to be a woman in late night, and what I found, and the reason we don't really go into it in the movie, is it was a total non-issue, and it was just my ignorance that made me think that it might be an issue. Um, no one seemed to care at all, which was interesting to me, since it is such a big conversation here. Right. I would, um, I, I think it's a challenge um, that's getting better, but um, definitely still a challenge. I Shows reflect who the people in charge want to hire. And some people have really made, I think Trevor Noah has made a big effort to diversify his staff, not just gender, but um, backgrounds, race, mm-hmm. lots of different ways. And um, Hassan Minaj has a new show coming out and it seems like they've really made an effort to diversify their staff. <coughs> and I I think it reflects why you want different people hosting mm-hmm. because um, I think People tend to want people who share their experience writing and producing for them. And there's an assumption that that will be someone who looks like you. So the more different people hosting, the more diverse those staffs will be. I think it's also um, about hiring more diverse entry-level staffs because people tend to, it's not a problem that solves itself quickly because shows in a way of loyalty, I think want to hire people Who they know and have seen do a good job for them and because for years they've done a horrible job hiring a diverse entry level round of people then when they give promotions the people who they're promoting are mostly white more male than female um but it has in the time i've been doing it changed a a decent amount like i um when i first worked at the daily show i was in the field department for three years and then I switched to what we called studio, which was anything in the studio. So it it was pitching ideas for um, John or then Trevor at the desk or any correspondent pitching an idea for them at the green screen or at the desk and then finding the video for those things. And the first year I was in studio, I would go to the two writers' meetings each day and (laughs) that uh, first year, there was a female writer who had left and so there'd be thirty people in the room, and myself and the writers' assistant were the only women. Mm-hmm. Um, that's weird, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it wasn't a show that didn't want to talk about issues relating to women, women. But the pitches were less commonly coming from that, and it it became a joke, uh, like a running joke that I would pitch these kind of dark stories, or but really they were just pitching stories about women's issues. That I think some people were a little less comfortable doing so. If I would pitch something about campus sexual assault, or rape, or abortion, um, it would stand out more, just because there were fewer at the time. That dramatically changed in the time I was there where more people, including the men, were pitching those kinds of stories. So um, I guess I would say it's improving and there's a very, very long way to go. Right, right. And I I,
5: I ask, I, I happen to be interested in, I'm doing some research right now on <laughs> feminist comedians in particular, and and I'm I'm thinking of, well, I've done a, thinking of turning it into a book actually on uh, sort of feminist comedians as cultural battleground in some way, Mm -hmm. because I'm really interested in the way that You have you have more and more visible female performers, obviously, and behind the scenes, um, which is great, and that you are getting these sort of new issues and new concerns, which are coming out, and people are and just more likely to talk about sexual assault or structural inequalities and all sorts of things like that. Um, But then at the same time, you have this very sort of like visible backlash at the at, at the same time and. Um, the sort of really kind of vitriolic trolling um, which another theorist refers to as gender trolling you know it's a very very much that that sort of trolling is different the tenor of it is different when it's aimed at women and people of color um, and we see some of that even coming from the president, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, um, and so anyway, some of these little sort of cultural controversies that flare up around jokes or whatnot, with Samantha Bee's joke about Ivanka Trump, Michelle Wolf's uh, dinner, all of those things, that you can really see this sort of the culture wars play out in real time over how you know the language that's being used and what's being mobilized there. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but oh, I yeah. but I'm I'm just interested in what that feels like
1: from the inside, right? And from your perspective. Yeah, I think um, I mean it sounds like an interesting book. I, <laughs> I uh, in the case of Michelle Wolf, in my mind, there's no question that the level of response to her was very much connected to her being a woman. I think I watched her speech and didn't see the backlash for like another day. And then I thought, did I space out during the speech? I really questioned myself because I was like, I missed that part. I missed that part. And then I looked at the clip and I was like, oh, it's intentionally being distorted. And her speech should have only been noticed because it was really funny. And I mean, she didn't do anything that lots of guys haven't done in that same room before her. And she was funnier than a lot of them. So the fact that she got called out for making fun of a woman and all these things, it just literally didn't happen. If you watched it in context, I, it made no sense. And I think that was an example of the media. There were some people in the media who were like, well, maybe she went too far. And I was like, this is, she was a comedian invited to a comedy event to tell jokes, and that's what she did. Right. And then everyone should have been standing up for her. And, and, and most importantly, she was funny. Like, the number one obligation is to be funny if you're doing that. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, I think there's fewer women, so things stand out more. Like, a thing about Bassem is that there was one of him. So it was really easy to be critical and to hurt the infrastructure. I think something that's really great in our culture of satire is there's a lot of people. I mean, you might say like oversaturation, but I think it's a really good thing because there's something for a lot of different audiences, and as a group, they're so much stronger because there's a bunch of them that it's harder to pinpoint or or deconstruct too much of what they're doing. But there's very few women, and I think um, who at least get a big, Microphone like Samantha Bee, Michelle Wolf, Sarah Silverman, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Robin Thede had something for a season. There's people doing it and who have done it, but there's fewer, and I think they just get torn apart more over things that a guy has and would say again, and it it would kind of be no big deal. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I,
5: I'm, I'm interested. I'm, and I. I'm glad that there were others, like commentators, who started noting it as well. But it was so fascinating to me, particularly even the tweet that sort of started everything around Michelle Wolf was, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it was something. But I and you know offended on Sarah Sanders' behalf that I can't, I couldn't, I was horrified at watching Sarah Sanders, a wife and mother, being insulted on national television, and there was all this language then around it, around essentially litigating, um, you know, being a woman in public, right? And there was this sort of, like, the good sort of motherly figure versus
1: the shrew, essentially, which Right. Was. the community. And I think, I mean, there's probably every woman in this room has had... It's not, I don't think, for a woman, weird to imagine this experience happening, like, you know, you're a little kid in school, and you see boys speaking out of turn or different things and get away with it, and then, you know, you're a little loud once and you get in trouble. Or I, I think it's, like, a cultural thing that's not... In any way exclusive to comedy, that a woman might make that joke and it offends people to their core, right. and a guy might, and it it would be totally forgettable. Right,
5: right. Um, but yeah, but you mentioned the the sort of perhaps saturation of late night, and just that there's a lot of choices right now, which is great if you enjoy satire, right? That there's there are choices. Um, there's kind of a boom, right? In um, particularly in uh, sort of parody news shows of different, of different versions and I know that you were involved in um, Jordan Klepper's show The Opposition um, which unfortunately was recently cancelled um, do you think it's becoming harder for these types of programs to distinguish themselves um, and is there a sort of challenge there? Um, um, I think
1: it, The Opposition was a character show like a Colbert type of thing and I think that's really hard Um, And I, you know, in that example, I think even jokingly, the audience, it was on after The Daily Show and the audience who watches The Daily Show, even jokingly, didn't necessarily want to see someone saying these horrible things. Um, And that was kind of a concern from the first time we talked about the idea. Like, I don't know if people are going to be up for that. And, um... I don't, so I don't know on You're that. Not example. a fan of Alex Jones. You don't want to right. watch. Right, and Alex I think Jones. Jordan Klepper. People people knew Stephen Colbert already, and um, he was in character on The Daily Show, where Jordan Klepper was not that character previously. So um, there was a question of just like, oh wait, is this guy joking? Does he believe these things? It, you know, it's a harder right, right, right. thing. I think in general, um, I really like the fact that there's lots of shows. I mean you know, you probably are only going to watch one or two of those, even if you're a fan of these things, it's not like you're watching eight satire shows a week. So there's a thing that suits your needs, whatever that is. Um, But, I mean, like everything, I'm sure it's a trend. And then the, I mean, these shows have a tendency to be more liberal, and usually when a conservative is in power, they're more popular. Um, So, you know, Who's to say in two years will it be less popular? I don't know. It's not like things get better all, all over the place. Um, when when Obama won, people were like, "Oh, you guys aren't going to have a show anymore," and it's like there are plenty of things still going on in this country to poke yeah. fun at around the world. So um, you know, th- but there's probably a bit of a cycle to it right now where people are frustrated and there's a real hunger for some therapeutic way to deal with it with comedy. Sure.
5: Um, and I know we need to open up to the audience in just a second, but I, so I guess just one last question is, do you, um, do you have an eye to your next project, or are you giving it some time?
1: Um, a little bit of both. In theory, I'm giving myself time, but I, I find it hard not to brainstorm a little and try to develop some things. So um, I have a few ideas for um, a scripted show and movie, and then I have an idea for um, kind of a late night style essay docu show that would be one episode, uh, sorry, one topic per episode, kind of deep dive, John Oliver style, but focusing on stories relating to women and minorities. Um, So that's kind of the one I've worked on the most, outlining what those episodes would look like. Um, But for a little while, I'm trying to do some of these talks on campuses and um, when I was doing the shows, I, I couldn't really do a lot of these because my schedule was crazier. Uh, and now I can do more of these and they're fun for me. So that uh, basically I'm trying to buy some time to, to figure out what I want to do next. Fair enough.
5: <laughs> Great. Um, sh- should we open it up to sure. questions from the audience? Okay. I'm. Feel free to step up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the first person is always the bravest, so you win. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Hello.
5: Um, I uh, we talked earlier, uh, but I'm Tanya Ballard-Brown. I'm a fellow with the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard, and in my regular non studentish life, I'm an editor at NPR. And the question I had was, were there things that you learned watching how Youssef's show was produced and created or conversations that they had or things that they did on that show that you took back to the Daily Show or that you even took to the Clipper show that um, you hadn't thought about before or that were new ways of sort of
1: doing things at that show? They did a lot more. Um, it was kind of a cross between an SNL type show and Daily Show in the sense of it was just much bigger. Like It was very typical to have like a song and dance number, and um, but like comedy. But... Uh, not something we really did on The Daily Show until like a little later in my time being there. Later in John's run, we did kind of some more of those. There was a, I forget now if this was before or after I started the film, but I think it was after. There was, um, I forget even what it was in response to, but we had a gospel choir come on and... Um, Remember scream, that. fuck you. No, About, yeah, uh, go, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. the Go Fuck Yourself Choir. <laughs> so that was a piece I worked on. Um, and that was like way more in line with um, something Boston would do. Uh, so um, I think more of what I took back, and, and I actually remember on the first trip writing an email to the staff at home, just um, being really struck by how motivated they were by what we were doing and kind of uh, trying to not take for granted both the impact it was having and also the freedom we had in doing it and that, um, I mean, Daily Show would have, like, weirdos who would protest things occasionally, and, but almost all nonviolent. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it, it kind of appreciating that it was a luxury to, to be able to do comedy in that environment uh, and that was something I really took home and, and felt very grateful for.
5: we have other questions? (laughs) (laughs) Squeak,
1: squeak. Um,
0: So now having uh, seen this from Egypt and obviously worked on shows here, what do you see uh, as the, what kind of effect do you see those type of shows having um, in a political climate on a population? Is it actually something more than entertainment or Um, And is that role different where you have a truly oppressive regime versus a wannabe oppressive regime?
1: Well, there's a lot of wannabes right now. Um, I think there there are a bunch of these shows that have sprung up kind of all over the world, which is really cool, Um, some much bigger than others, and some not necessarily in oppressive regimes, but in places where this exact type of thing wasn't happening. met a guy a few months ago who was visiting and had seen the movie who's um, doing a French type of thing like this on their HBO equivalent, and um, it's a newer thing there. Um, I think, to me, the impact is um, only dependent on, on what the audience does with it. So. There are many people who watch comedy segments here and share them on social media, and that's great. And that can make you feel less alone or make you aware of something, but it doesn't really do anything. Uh, and the way I feel about comedy is um, very much like the way I grew up hearing about like religion and prayer, which was uh, prayer doesn't change things, prayer changes people, people change things. And I think the same is true of comedy. Comedy doesn't change things comedy changes people, people change things. So if, and this could be in a country where this is new or here, um, if you see something and it pisses you off and makes you laugh, you might be a drop more likely to be open to at least talking about it, um, raising awareness, and then maybe even doing more. But just watching it does nothing externally. It's just comforting to yourself, sharing it doesn't really do anything it just lets your community know you're a member of the group and makes you wear it but it doesn't really change a thing. Um, I think in the case of Bossom's experience what was interesting is it inspired people to to do more and to be open comedy is really cool because like if I said something bad about a politician you liked you'd probably turn off right away but if I used a bunch of video clips to prove a case that they were being a hypocrite and then made a joke about it, you might actually at least be open to watching it. And that was happening week after week for Bossum and and for a lot of these other shows and and here too. Um, And I think that can make a difference. And one cool thing I learned doing some of these talks is um, there's a professor at Penn State, um, Sophia McLennan, who uh, does research on a lot of these things and she told me that uh, sometimes when you're making this stuff, you're not sure, like are you just screaming into an echo chamber? And um, apparently, her research has shown that people who just watch the news all day and care about current events aren't necessarily likely to be active in, in doing anything. But interestingly, people who like to watch satire are way more likely to actually do something about it. So the kind of person who decides to turn into a show at 11.30 to help them laugh about the thing that's making them feel crazy is more likely to actually get excited and, and do the thing to make a difference. And that was cool to hear from my perspective because it's like, you put a lot of effort into this stuff and the main goal really is just to make people laugh. But of course, if you're working on the show, you personally probably have an interest in, in making a, a change in these things. So. Um, so if you like satire, pat yourself on the back because you're more inclined to be the so.
5: <laughs> And if you don't mind if I add to that too, because yeah. I was going to say that, you know, because I write about satire as well, I sometimes get asked for quotes and whatnot when journalists are doing a story about something that just happened, right? And they have this, oftentimes, not always, but this incredibly narrow way of talking about the effects of satire, which makes me so annoyed um, because it's always asked like, do you think this is going to affect the election? is this going to single-handedly like bring down so and so you know and it's such a strange way to measure efficacy because it's like not, very little in human history actually operates that way right where like one thing will suddenly change everybody's mind and like it'll single-handedly bring down that wall whatever right like that that's just not how stuff happens but um, but what I'm really interested in in my, in my work, I talk a lot about the way in which satire, uh, the, you can see the effects of satire in the way that it can slowly shift the conversation, right? Which is actually a very large thing. Um, so just the, the terms that are used, right? It can introduce new terms into the debate or it can bring what, what's otherwise a sort of niche issue that only like, a small public is talking about to the larger public. Um, and just you know, the, shifting that conversation in small ways is small, but as you said, I mean, I think this is how it, people, cultural change happens slowly and it happens over conversations that we're having with each other over and over and over again, right? And those are sort of slowly shifting over time and you don't see the effect until you're there, right? Um, and also, and this idea of sharing clips with people. Um, that, you know, we have this expression where we say, well, it's just preaching to the converted as if that's the most waste of time thing that you could do, right? But there's a reason that a preacher preaches to the converted every week, which is that we need that, right? We need that affirmation, and we need to feel like we belong to some sort of community, and that there are other people around us who feel the same way, and we're not the only person who's like, am I the only person seeing this, right? But like, no, we we have, you see it too. Oh my God, we're not crazy, right? And there's sort of Strength in numbers, and I think um, you can't you can't ta- form a political movement until you have that sense of like community and shared purpose, right? So I think yeah. all of those things.
1: No, I think that's true, and I think that I mean I do think sometimes, like in in Bassem's case, I think he was largely credited with making people distrust their first democratically elected president, who was then removed from power. So. I think the people who hate him would say because half the country was watching him each week, he had such a strong influence that people didn't necessarily think long term. And I, so I mean, it's not to say that a comedy show can't change things and change people. I, I mean, related. I one one of the coolest things for me with the movie it has been um, the bipartisan nature of the audiences in the sense of. I hoped that Daily Show fans would like it, um, and that luckily was the case, but I didn't have any idea that it would do really well with conservatives and libertarians and all these other groups. And that was a big surprise, that on the way to one of our first screenings, um, I, I got a call that someone working with Ted Cruz wanted us to know that he was a fan of the movie. And I was like, what? That's so I never would have expected that. And then as it went on, Um, Glenn Beck turned out to be a big fan and had Bassam on and then the weirdest one for me (laughs) that I kind of had to figure out how to handle was um, I was asked to um, screen the movie for something with the the Koch family and I'm I always thought I was moderate the last few years I've learned I'm very liberal Um, but I'm not a fan (laughs) and I um, wasn't sure if I should do it, and my brother was like, you can't do this in the next room. They're going to be trying to dismantle healthcare. And I was like, you're right. And then um, I was talking to my brother-in-law, and he was like, no, you have to do it. Like, you didn't make this movie to only show it to people who agree with you. And I was like, ah, oh, you're right. Um, so I, I went, and it, it happened to be that um, we ultimately did a few screenings with them, but the first screening was the weekend that the Muslim ban was announced. And um, so I decided I was going to, to do it, but I was going to be very open about my opinions uh, and, and you know what I thought. Um, and so in the Q&A, I talked about the fact that Bassem is a perfect example of a Muslim immigrant coming to this country because it wasn't safe for him at home mm-hmm. and that's who we're talking about. And we had a good conversation um, and the next day, Cokes issued a statement condemning the muslim ban, uh, and i have no way of knowing if it's directly related or not i know some of them were in the room um but it made me hopeful mm-hmm. that um sometimes it's really it's so hard right now to stay calm about anything going on but i i do generally believe cooler heads prevail and that it, i think like a lucky thing with this movie for american audiences is that most of us don't know much at all about other countries or pay any attention. So when people watch the movie, they don't have a horse in the race Mm -hmm. and they can just pay attention to their opinion. And I've learned that free speech is something that um, both sides really care about and they come at it for different reasons. For conservatives and libertarians, it's more about college campuses and feeling like speech is condemned on campuses. For liberals, it's more about press and feeling like the media is being condemned but they both come to the conclusion that we have a history of free expression and we need to protect it, um, and that makes me hopeful that, uh, on some things, there can at least be a starting point if, mm-hmm. if we hear it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, did you have a question? Let's see, if, let's see if I remember it. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. This was this is awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, so, who are you? My name's Julie Fox, okay. and. <laughs> I'm a member of the community, and um, there's no other week where we're more aware how dangerous journalism can be and speaking up can be. And I was wondering, as I was listening to you, if you could give us a window into the creative room, if there's any discussion about should we do that? Should we say that? Is that going too far? Is there any degree of censorship? Is there any degree of fear? And has that changed over time? Well, um, yes. I, I mean, I think it it might be the most dangerous time in history to be a journalist, not even meaning this week, but just the numbers around the world of journalists um, being injured or killed. Um, yes, of course, there's a conversation frequently about, should we say it, but not so much in terms of self-censorship, more along the lines of, um, there are things that are funny in the room that you would never want to say in front of a microphone um, because you have a rapport with the people who you're sitting with and you understand the context of a joke or different things, but it, it might be super offensive to say it to someone who wasn't part of that earlier conversation. Um, I think there's a lot of times conversations about um, anything having to do with like kids or someone's kid, a public figure, not wanting to do that. There's conversations about um, a lot of times it comes out of the idea that there's so many bad things happening. Is this the one to go in on? I mean, I can't count now the number of times we are doing a show and a school shooting happened. And... Do you say something at the top of the show? Do you rewrite the open? Do you do it tomorrow once you processed it? Do you wait for the next one? Because there's going to be another one and we have a piece we've been working on that's not quite ready. You know, there are these other things that you consider. <coughs> when um, we started the opposition, one of our test shows was uh, during like the weekend after, the, the week after Charlottesville and it was like one of the first shows we had written and how do you make that funny and what do you do with it Um, especially through the lens of a character who would have some sympathies to these people how do you do that in a way that's funny but i mean the fun cool thing is like if you like doing this you on those days you come in to the morning meeting and um, everyone watches clips of whatever's going on and everyone makes jokes any jokes that people laugh at get written in the notes and you start the meeting with something that feels unthinkable. And an hour later, there's usually at least one thread that feels kind of cathartic. And then you work on that for the rest of the day. And um, that's cool. And sometimes, and, and I think like the responsibility you feel if you're someone who loves satire is to go after the hard stuff. Like Those are my favorite pieces, are the ones where you don't think there's any way you could possibly do it in the morning, and then you find the way. <coughs> because those are important, and I think most of the other stuff isn't really important. It's entertaining, it's really nice to have. But I mean, uh, more and more, and I think now under this president, it's really important to have this accountability. It's not just like a nice, fun luxury to have. So um, I think that's more of the when should we do it, or I, like I'm definitely someone who thinks there's not a single thing that you can't make a joke about but there's tons of jokes that I don't like or I think are stupid or offensive or just not funny. Like, I think if you're funny uh, in, in that particular joke, you can do it and you can find a way to make it work. And, I mean, like, there isn't a place in history where there wasn't, there, in a concentration camp or in slavery, or there was someone there who was, like, cracking a joke to the person next to them because that's the nature of humans. Um, and, and the worse something is, the more you need to laugh. So it is a balance of finding how to do it and when to do it, and feeling like it's the right moment and the right joke.
4: Hi. Um, I'm an ex-Al Jazeera journalist, as I told you earlier. I have so many questions, but I'll just ask you two. <laughs> um, this idea that you know over the last few years that comedy and these late night shows are actually more reliable than journalism, you know um, has that put an added? Kind of pressure on, and, and I think you have addressed some of that. But how do the writers see themselves um, when this is the kind of narrative that's being built regarding them being more reliable, right? And the second question—wait, sorry,
1: d- uh, could we don't want a time because I'll forget your first question. Can I come back to your second question? Yeah, sure. Okay, stay there. Stay there. I, um, I, I would say um, there's always these studies that come out that say more young people get their news from the Daily Show than from the news, and I never believe it. I think they might get their TV news from The Daily Show. But I think there's a lot of ways to get news now. And it's a self-selective group that wants to watch satire. I mean, you couldn't watch The Daily Show every day and understand it if you weren't getting news in some other way. So maybe it's your Facebook feed or Twitter or whatever. But um, I think people are more informed than the polls would indicate. Um, I think that um, in the room, you're first obligation is just to be funny. And I don't think you're starting the piece going, how can we get people to think about this issue and do this thing? Um, I think pieces would be kind of boring if you approached it that way. It's like usually the way we approach it is, what is the story and what is our take? Um, and then from that, you you try to lay out the truth and jokes about the truth. Um, but I will say there were a bunch of times like where I'd be, um, looking up a story and I'd find a clip or something really old or interesting or weird and I would have no idea why mainstream news hadn't covered it or shown that same clip. Like I wasn't using anything that wasn't available to anyone else with a budget and a lot of what we were using was free stuff on the internet. I mean, a lot of times it would be from like c-span.org or things like that that anyone could find just sitting at home on their computer, so um, I do get why people seem to trust some of these shows, like The Daily Show, a little bit more, because I do think that there's a huge value placed on getting it right. And not to say that there haven't been mistakes made, but they're few and far between. Um, And I think that part of that is luxury of, I mean, even though now there's shows once a week, and Daily Show's four times a week, you're coming on once a day for 22 minutes, Twitter changes it a little bit, but the goal isn't to be the first one to comment on something, it's to have a really good take. And I think that helps be right. Whereas, like a lot of journalism now, I think there's a big pressure to be first. And that's not good. You know, it's good to get breaking news, but you have to be correct in what you're reporting. And, And sometimes I think comedy shows have had a better track record.
4: I mean, th- I mean that's fine and, and that's fair, but like if you think about John Oliver's show, I mean that's like a kind of essay mm-hmm. in, in journalism. That would be like the long form, poem, you know. Um, and so there's an investigative aspect to that, and it seems like the comedy shows don't or uh, well, aren't um, confined to the conventions of journalism, but they are doing journalism, right? Um, somehow. I, I
1: wouldn't say sometimes. they're doing journalism. Somehow. I mean, I guess I would say. They're doing satire, and satire can be long-form, sure. but yeah. But
4: then the, 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 the point that you've also mentioned yourself was that um, it's about you know trying to get things right, but what happens when you get things wrong? So for example, uh, Trevor did a, sh- did a stint, on, sorry, did a segment on Pakistan right, um, some weeks ago, and he got a lot of blowback because he compared Trump to Imran Khan. And so how do you measure then the success of that segment because it was funny for some people. So
1: I, I'm not familiar with the segment. Was he, was he getting pushed back because he got something factually incorrect or because people didn't like the point he was making?
4: Because the, the perception um, to suggest that, like, Imran Khan was, or is this, like, the new Prime Minister of Pakistan, is the same as Donald Trump, okay? The um, idea that these two characters could be the same and using this very, like, f- very, like flimsy kind of comparisons that, uh, you know, like, fell into, like, tropes about Pakistan um, essentially, he received a lot of blowback for those from those people who understand the country. So he kind of, like, that segment was wrong in that way. It was funny for in certain aspects, but it wasn't accurate as he would be um, on a domestic issue or something else, like on South Africa or Africa, you know? Um, so is there, like, when you receive that kind of blowback, there was some blowback. Is there, like, a discussion?
1: So I can't speak to that one. Cause I, I'm not there anymore, and I, I don't... Um, I haven't seen it. I guess I would say, um, knowing the process, I would guess that some people f- who knew a lot about that issue worked on that story. Um, and even though the staff is in America and you know Trevor is now here and is from South Africa, I wouldn't necessarily assume that it wouldn't be people who don't have a lot of familiarity with the region. Um, and I would also guess that he stands by it unless he's issued an apology or said differently. So I think that's potentially more of a case of a disagreement in, in the point being made versus a mistake. Um, I think when a mistake is made, they have recognized it and um, apologized. I, so I, I don't know if that happened in this case. If not, I wouldn't assume that it, they perceive it as a mistake. I think what, there's pushback on so many things. Um, so many pieces, someone doesn't like it. You know, obviously there's two sides perceiving something and one side being portrayed in a segment. So it's it's not infrequent at all to get pushback on something. Um, the larger the pushback, the more likely people in the office would talk about it. But um, I I would say, like, there's genuine desire to get it right. And so I think there's also a genuine reaction of if, if people were... Rallying around something and saying it was incorrect or inappropriate or um, offensive, I think the people who work at the Daily Show, for example, would would really think about it and then say something if they felt like they should. Hello. Hey, hello. Uh,
5: so I'm a student here uh, at MIT. And I was just wondering where you go if you want to laugh. Like, I, we've been talking a lot about news, and I'm definitely pretty deprived of news. Like, if there's not a talk on campus, I don't hear about it. But well, you're uh, here. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but, like, if you want to laugh, like, whether it's, like, current events related or just, like, in general, like, to make yourself happy,
1: <laughs> uh, where do you, like, what source? Well, do I don't personally do? like to laugh, but I, <laughs> um, I go to MIT lectures when I do. But um, I, uh, you know, I have to say... I, having worked in late night for 15 years and watching the news all day every day, I definitely feel burnt out. And since you know, leaving this show this summer, I have tried to limit my news consumption to stuff I can read. Um, until the Kavanaugh hearings, I hadn't watched the news for two months, more than 10 minutes, mostly I was reading news. Um, so most of my Viewing has been for the purpose of entertainment um, and and trying to lighten myself uh, in the mood, Uh, but I um, I I like to see stand-up sometimes I um, There's a show an improv show that I like a lot that I saw a few weeks ago And I was like oh yeah sometimes comedy really helps that you know I was in a bad mood and then I saw this show (coughs) and it just made things a little easier um, I, I like live stuff a lot, so um, I'll I'll tend to do that. Um, I also, d- I mean, I have a lot of funny friends, so I'll hang out and joke around about stuff. Um, and my husband's really funny, um, so we'll joke around about things. But um, TV shows and, and live events, I would say, are, are mostly, but, but honestly, right now, less satire, because I'm just a little burnt out on all of it. Sometimes I'll watch a John Oliver segment or a Samantha Bee segment um, to kind of hear their perspective on something. And occasionally I'll like seek out what do they have to say about this particular thing this week. Um, but I've parried back on it a little bit um, just because I'm I'm trying to not be 24-7 news consumption, um, even when it's comedy. Where, what do you do? Oh.
5: That's okay. uh, <laughs> I don't know if I do enough in like trying to laugh often enough, um, which is why I like seek out the this um, like series of events like the people who come who like talk. I don't know like I find like journalists or like people who can write well. They tend to be like funny and insightful. Yeah, but, um,
1: yeah, not enough. So I'm trying to work cool. on. That. So <laughs> more more comedy stuff on campus <laughs> is a, a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank cool. You. Thank you. <laughs>
3: Hi, I'm Adam Zan. thanks for Hi. coming tonight. Um, you, you talked about taking a bit of a break, and I'm guessing the documentary process, very lengthy, and uh, producing a show for multiple years can also be lengthy. Have you thought about some short form things, um, you know, Funny or Die, for instance? And
1: yes, that's really weird, because um, I had never thought of it until like three hours ago. I, <laughs> do you know that? I saw a tweet about oh, it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, a friend of mine, um, wrote a, um, a, a parody off of My So-Called Life, which, um, for the students here, that was a TV show. In the 90s, that was my favorite show when I was 15. Uh, and uh, so she's trying to get Funny or Die to produce it, and so I told her if, if she did it, I'd be happy to direct it or produce it. Um, so, uh, yes, but I the stuff I'm the most into tends to be, like, a little bit longer form, um, at least episodic, to, to feature. But um, one thing I've been interested in doing that I don't know how yet, but um, trying to combine my skill set with some of the issues I care about, trying to do some um, funny videos about serious issues, so um, maybe working with some gun control groups or women's rights groups to, to try and help them come up with stuff that they would like to draw some attention to their issues. So that's really interesting to me. It's not something I've done too much of. I've done a few videos for nonprofits, just like pro bono things, but they weren't really comedy. They were more just straight, help us tell our story types of things. Um, So it's something I'm open to. I think right now what's kind of exciting is there are a lot of things that seem interesting, and I'll throw a bunch at the wall and see what sticks. Um, The short things. Are fun because they don't take years. I mean, this this has been when I was making the movie. I was still I was at the Daily Show, so from eight thirty in the morning till seven thirty at night, I'd be at work, and then I'd go to the edit. Um, and then the year we were doing the edit, I had a very weird lucky thing happen, which was um, I mentioned that when I was shooting, we didn't want any publicity. So as soon as we were done, I needed to fundraise (laughs) so I set up an Indiegogo campaign um, and sent it to everyone I knew and some people shared it with other people and an acquaintance of mine worked for Save the Children and had just gone on a service trip with some people and posted um, the Indiegogo page and um, sent it to this woman and who was on the trip and she watched the video and went about her day and her husband sat down to check his email and it turned out he was the CEO of Technicolor, a really big film company. And it was uh, shortly after Charlie Hebdo and they're a French American company. It was their 100th anniversary and they were interested in doing something to celebrate, recognize their anniversary. And they liked the idea of supporting a filmmaker trying to tell a story about free speech in the Middle East which was amazing, and when they called to tell me, I totally thought it was a prank. Um, it was actually the day after John Stewart announced he was gonna leave the show, so in 24 hours, I was like, I'm gonna lose my job. I have this cool thing happening. Um, but that changed the scope entirely of the film, so I thought it was just gonna be me and an editor cutting in my apartment, and it turned out I had 12 full-time employees and a bunch of interns, and it became, a, by comparison, a huge project. So um, Though it was amazing, for that year, I didn't have a day off. Um, We worked weekends, and their days off were Tuesday, Wednesday, so that I could go to work during the week and go to the edit um, nights and weekends. (coughs) So um, I'm happy to have a little more free time now uh, and and not do two jobs at once, um, and then potentially some short stuff too.
2: Uh, Ken McClinsky, I'm over here with the staff over at MIT. Uh, The question was about like the use of parody in media because when during the Kavanaugh hearings there was a clip that came out that mixed Kavanaugh's testimony with a scene from Pulp Fiction with Jules and question and answer and response.
1: I was so pissed that I did not think of that. I thought it was so funny.
2: And that was hilarious, but I have like another friend on social media that uses a lot of vulgarity and he'll spend time in either Facebook or Twitter jail. So finding that like, as we have access to social media, sometimes like I think something's funny, I'll put it out there, but like, ah, no traction or anything. But it's seeming that like the more people are engaged with it in that process and there's more discussion, but is like, is that kind of making everybody feel good? Is it actually being a barb that may like, or a barb or a feather as the case may be with someone to make them a little more uh, taken aback to say, hmm, well, I don't know about that, because uh, it just seems like with with uh, politicians, the way they go, they just go about their business and don't really think they're like, they're deflon coated or something. So it's like, as people put that information out there uh, when when you tell, like, when's a good uh, approach for doing parody online?
1: I mean, so the Kavanaugh example, um, I thought it was super funny, and honestly, first time I laughed that week. Uh, so I think that's an example of sort of a release and feeling not alone. Um, I don't think Someone who thought Kavanaugh should be on the Supreme Court was going to watch that and have this aha moment where they reevaluated things because this next, or not, uh, the uh, Pulp Fiction uh, clip, but um, I think it had it had a big value actually, and like that's kind of a perfect example of a tiny one or two minute clip that I think a lot of people found joy in at a time when they were in pain. Uh, so I I guess. I don't know. I think it it had an is the question sort of if it if it has an effect? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if the question is, is Twitter self-indulgent, like, yeah, 100%, (laughs) definitely, that's what it is. It's people thinking that their innermost thoughts should be documented every 15 minutes. You know, I literally can't think of a person I know who I think should talk to the world every 15 minutes, anyone I've ever met. Um, So, uh, I think by design, it's it's not something that necessarily... (laughs) um, you know, is a a must-have for society to exist. But I think that there's good things that come out of it. I mean, um, like in the Arab Spring, Twitter was a huge means of communication and finding like-minded people and finding places to meet and being safe and helping people. Um, For comedy, I think... it's Like, one conversation that does come up on shows is... Um, uh, someone already made that joke on Twitter. Oh, uh, they already talked about that on Twitter. And then you get to a point where it's like, okay, it doesn't really matter that we're going to do the thing we think is good and, in the way we think is good, and Twitter will beat you to it. Every joke has been made on Twitter within two hours about a story that comes out. Hopefully, what's being added in a more long-form thing is, is of more value, like, relatively speaking, jokes are easy, but for, for people who write jokes, it's more... Um, the the take that makes it interesting and important that uh, it's one of the reasons why I get frustrated by the push to be so responsive to the news cycle on comedy shows because if, if a story broke right before we came in here and we're writing a show right now and we're probably going to try to make at least one joke at the top about that big story, that joke is a throwaway joke. Like it warms you up, it's kind of funny, but it doesn't mean anything. If tomorrow we've digested it, and we spend a day and a half coming up with our point of view and the one thing that we think is really important to say, that actually might add value to the conversation. Twitter is almost exclusively the first part, where there's like a release valve and it's funny and that's valuable. But like the snakes in a plane guy, or sorry, I keep saying that, the Pulp Fiction thing was, um, the uh, Pulp Fiction clip was, I don't think came out immediately. I think. I think it was a few days later, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if anyone knows. But like someone had a thought, and then they were like probably processing and then decided to make this clip. And maybe in that case, it just took a little longer to physically do the work of it. I, I have no idea. But um, I think that clip was better because I didn't see it the day of the hearing. The day of the hearing, I probably wasn't in the mood to take that in. And I had had a minute, and then I watched it, and I was like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted. And I didn't know it. So um, I think that the value adds are a little different between social media and, and TV. Sure.
3: Uh, hi, um, I'm Kenneth Cox, I'm a student here. Uh, first of all, thanks for coming. Uh, it was a really great presentation, I really enjoyed it. Good. Um, so I want to go back to a point you made earlier about, <clears throat> I think it was a study uh, from Penn State which found that, um, which suggested that people who view satire um, as opposed to regular news more often uh, are more politically motivated. So uh, to me, that suggests that there is a very positive benefit of satire, maybe not something intrinsic to the medium itself, but at least something um, uh, something to get people motivated about being politically active. Um, but... Do you suppose there are also negative um, consequences of satire? Um, what I have in mind is um, people who uh, watch jokes about political figures they respect, Trump supporters, for example, who um, maybe watch these SNL skits feel offended. Do you think that there's uh, even a slight chance that that contributes to some of the political polarization in this country?
1: Uh, I definitely think it's possible. I mean, I don't I don't know. I, I've wondered that. I mean, after this election and some other times where I've wondered, does it just divide people more? Um, I think in my mind, the, the way around that is to try to hold whomever is in power accountable for hypocrisy or um, abuses of power and, and not just do it selectively. Like in the movie, um, the same people who loved Bossom hated him once he started making fun of the person who they saw as the good guy, um, and that's really common. Like I, I've had many times where someone I know who's a Daily Show fan will be like, "Oh, he's very good, b- but he got it wrong this time," and you know, and he 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 didn't research it. He got the facts wrong, whatever. And and usually my feeling. Sometimes I'd be like, "Yeah, I don't think we got that one right." Usually my feeling was more like, "Okay, you disagreed with his point of view." Um, I. I think I don't think it's a cause and effect. That, like, I don't think, um, for example, someone who's a Trump supporter tunes in with a very open mind and then gets offended and then leaves feeling differently about it. Not to say that it doesn't happen on certain issues, but I don't think, in general, that's what's happening. I think it's more that people are choosing things that they feel relates to them. But like, I, when I was in the field department at The Daily Show, I would try to book pieces and to my pleasant surprise, very often conservatives would be fans of the show. <laughs> um, and, and in certain ways where I would be like, I don't think we're as divided as it would seem like. There, um, when the movie Broke Back Mountain came out, I was working on a piece about um, gay rodeos and I had to book a homophobic cowboy. And um, I think I went through three dozen cowboys before I found someone who was homophobic and wanted to go on TV and, and brag about that. Um, and it's very hard to actually find the people in these segments who feel so strongly that they want to announce to the world that they, they believe these things. And I think when you watch these shows at home, it's easy to think, um, everyone's ignorant and a racist and whatever, the other side feels this way. And I think. In my mind, that's, that's a negative of these shows, because you're only seeing the ones that are strong enough to make it to air, um, but uh, I mean, I, I think it's a reason why you shouldn't ever get all your information from a single source, including with satire. And as a viewer, you have a responsibility to kind of get different points of view. But um, yeah, I don't know, I've wondered that myself, like if it further polarizes people. Do you have any thoughts on that in research? Or um,
5: well, I think I. I, I
1: th- Some, (laughs)
5: but I I don't think, I mean, there hasn't been specific studies sort of done on, because people are selectively seeking out the media that they want, right? Um, And I think people have preconceived ideas and would just like, I would never watch this thing because they have this conception of it already. I I think in general, I mean, I've done a lot of work on um, irony and activism and ironic activist groups. And, um, you know, I talk about the way in which Irony is really good for attracting attention and sort of creating, you know, and getting and creating that feeling of community for people who do already feel strongly about something, or or feel a little bit about something, and they're reminded, they're actually, and they're made to feel more about it, right? Um, but I do talk about the way that it's certainly not. So when you have a group like the Billionaires for Bush when Bush was president, um, that they're probably not going to convince anyone on the hardcore other side who would likely feel excluded from that joke right um, and, and and feel somewhat offended by it um, but that's not really what they're setting out to do so so no, it's not a bridge builder I think would be the answer to that right It's not a bridge builder, but I think the billionaires for Bush when they were doing that that wasn't their aim. it was to draw attention to money in, in politics right and around this particular candidate
1: that makes sense I would say like kind of my current theory about all this stuff is um Even though I think dialogue is important and good, I'm currently less interested in trying to convince people I disagree with that I'm right, and I'm more interested in trying to convince people that I agree with that they should be active participants and things. So, uh, I mean, like in the election, there's 100 million people eligible to vote who don't. Um, I'm way more interested in being like, you should vote and here's why, than I am at convincing my uncle why he should vote my way. Um, so I think maybe comedy could work in that way, too. Like, not necessarily speaking to someone who thinks completely differently than you do, but um, convincing someone who agrees with you that it's worth their time to, to do something.
2: I am Greg PC. And, uh, you talk about satire and late night as being largely progressive and left to center. Are there examples of conservative satire and humor and... From the from the right,
1: yeah. um, There's red eye on Fox, which is hosted by I think Tom Shalhoub. There's um, I think Glenn Beck's channel had tried to do it. I don't think it succeeded. There have been lots of attempts. Is it just more
2: a more humorless crowd?
1: Um, I mean, my honest opinion on that is no. I think there's funny conservatives and I can think of some people I know who I think are very funny people. Um, I think it's a combination of things that um, I think there are more liberals in entertainment so you're going to have more funny people to choose from and obviously the more in the crop the better. I think that the bigger thing is um, punching down is way less funny than punching up and I don't want to watch someone who's already been victimized get made fun of. And I think that there is an association, the more conservative you are, and the uh, with going after groups that it's going to be way harder to conceptualize a joke where an audience is going to be on your side and, and want to laugh at it. And I think that's the bigger challenge. Thanks. And I, I will say... Yeah, I don't know if at the time he was like as conservative. I don't remember. Maybe it was. So maybe that's an example then. Yeah. It, it, was, ranty. it, was, it was, ranty. was ranty. It was ranty. Okay. Yeah.
5: But, um, but the, I think the punching down thing is huge. And, and then there also is some research coming out now, a colleague of mine has done, uh, on psychology and uh, partisanship, actually, which does indicate that um, Liberals tend to be more comfortable with um, shades of gray and irony, irony in general, and so there is sort of more. Uh, there seems to be more of an interest in certain forms of comedy um, versus, uh, you know, what what, uh, and and it's by and large, right, but versus what conservatives are attracted to. So, um, so there's some of that as well that might be playing into it. Yeah, um, but, but just in general, the use, I mean, satire relies so much on irony um, and just, you know, it, an interest in irony or in, or in sort of uh, even um, having I- your own ideas questioned or sort of made fun of um, that, that is kind of par for the course if you're doing political satire.
2: Hi, my name is Jason. Um, When you are filming a documentary about uh, events that are taking an extended period of time uh, like yours, how do you know when you're done versus like putting it down for another six months and just kind of seeing how things
1: play? That is a great question, and it's maddening. Um, You you don't. Um, And then I I guess there's a few parts of it. One is um, you run out of money, and then you're done. Um, One is you... um, You investigate a lot of different stories and you give yourself options and then you choose which story you want to tell. I mean, we had a few hundred hours of footage. Um, So there's lots of stories you can tell (coughs) and you choose which ones make the most sense for you. Um, And then you also, um, you try to guess what the story is that you're gonna tell. So, I mean, I mentioned that at the beginning I had a very different conception of what, it, what the story would be. On my first shoot, I panicked, and I was like, I don't know what the story is going to be. I don't know how I'm going to tell it, um, and, and talked to some friends at home who had done similar things to get advice. Um, and then in, in this film, uh, the director of photography, this guy, well, who happened to be visiting New York this week, so I just saw him, um, he and I were talking, and he just was. we were just having a random conversation, and he said, well, you know what's going to happen is CC, the head of the military, he's going to run for president, and he's going to wind up getting elected, and then it's going to be like none of this ever happened, and they're going to shut the show down. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And then that is exactly what happened. Um, And in our conversation, as it, it was planted a seed, and as little steps of that process started to happen, I was like, huh, maybe we should keep going until, 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 and then it wound up being sort of the full prediction. Um, So that gave me a basic outline of where to go, but um, a big debate for, basically, um, the best advice I got on this film was to ask yourself two questions in the edit. Who is your audience and what do you want them to feel when the movie's over? (laughs) So in my case, um, there were a lot of different kinds of audiences that we were trying to reach. Western audience, Middle Eastern audience, people who knew things about the Arab Spring, people who didn't, younger, older, um, who might not get the same jokes and references. So um, I decided that the audience I wanted to appeal to was a younger Western audience, and I wanted them to leave the movie feeling frustrated but hopeful and uh, inspired to do something about it. And so anything that didn't fit those things didn't go in, or at least didn't have to go in. And, and that helped us figure out which stories to include. And we were still filming some things at the point we were in the edit because Bassam was coming to America and there were things, and we weren't sure if the movie should end in Egypt, like right with the show getting canceled. Um, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, and if we were going to end there, one of my favorite scenes that we shot um, was immediately after the show was canceled, there was a rehearsal for um, a song and dance number that they were doing that week where (laughs) basically they were saying fuck you, fuck you, fuck you to CeCe and um, so all these people just found out that they were out of a job and this thing that they believed in was done and they decided to go up to the rehearsal room anyway and practice the number and the energy was crazy and at the end of the song this one young guy looks into the camera and he's like we will not be stopped, we will not be stopped and um, The dream will not die and it was this really beautiful moment and I I loved it and I wanted it in the movie and then um, Bossum had to leave Egypt and it felt like a really important part of the story to tell that he had to leave his country and why and the circumstances and that scene of the, the dancing felt like an end and we tried a million different ways and we couldn't figure out a good way to keep that scene in and then have the story continue for another 10 minutes, so we decided to remove it, because that's not where the story ended, that I wanted to tell. I wanted the story to include the fact that he had to leave.
2: So actually, my question is kind of about that. You have hundreds of hours of footage. You chose to tell one story. What about the rest of the footage? Do you ever think of remastering or letting someone remaster it?
1: Name your price, I'll give it to you. um, No, the the other footage, I mean, there's a million other stories that could be told. And, I mean, an example of how it could work is, I mentioned this guy, Mazia Bahari, who was a producer <coughs> on this film. He initially, there were a few people interested in making this documentary, and he initially thought about directing a movie about Bossum and had done some early filming of him and then had a bunch on his plate and couldn't do it, and I was interested, and ultimately we decided to work together, and he gave me the footage. So it still found a home. I mean, it... It's possible that there could be other stories that we would tell there was we've released a bunch of stuff online just as extras um, things that we found interesting that we couldn't include things that didn't necessarily need further context to make sense Um, I you know it's hard because like you raw footage isn't necessarily interesting to watch you have to Either make it a really long clip for it to make sense, or, or spend time cutting it. So I, most of the stuff we released were things that we thought we wanted to use and didn't have a place for it um, that could exist on their own. <coughs> um, the rest of it lives in hard drives and yeah. probably won't ever be seen. Yeah. Um, you never know. I mean, Bossom is doing this one-man show now, and he mentioned maybe wanting some of the footage. There was. Um, In the movie, there's a scene of him in the operating room, but there was some other footage that I thought he might want that I sent him this week. Um, You know, it's possible that that it could find other lives, but mostly, the whole point of the shoot is to give yourself options for the edit, and you don't know which stories you're going to tell or which ones are going to develop into anything. Something might seem interesting, and it doesn't really go anywhere. So you film it, and then you choose kind of which things meet the bar of, of what you want to tell. But seriously, if you want to buy it.
0: <laughs> thank you two so much for coming and thank you all. Um, please come tomorrow night to this screen. Uh, it's a great movie. And let's give another
1: big round of applause for your- Thank you. And uh, thank you so much. I j- I just, um, thank you for having me. This was definitely the first time um, I've done a talk in front of equations. So that makes me feel smarter by proximity. Awesome. Uh, And I I would also just mention, if you um, are here, obviously come tomorrow to the screening. If you know other people who might like the movie, um, you can find it at TicklingGiants.com or on iTunes or Amazon. And um, more so, I just want to say, if you start thinking of ways that you're Tickling Giants in your own lives, I'd love to hear what you're doing. So um, if you feel like putting it on social media, just hashtag it with Tickling Giants so I can follow along with what you're doing. Thank you.